to Luke chapter 19. We're going to take a couple weeks off from our regular series, going through the pathways of grace, the means of grace by which we walk with God. Take a couple week break from that just to celebrate Easter. And so this morning we're going to visit the Lord on Palm Sunday as He comes into Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to us spending some time with our Savior at that point. But also recognize that as we do a message on Palm Sunday, um, we're in danger in some ways. We're in danger of boredom because we probably have heard many, many messages on Palm Sunday throughout our lives. And, and the temptation for us is to anticipate boredom and to participate in boredom and kind of think, been there, done that. I know this story, seen it before, sang the song. Uh, matter of fact, probably some of us were even in Palm Sunday or Easter pageants and do this, the Palm Sunday thing. Remember the songs? I, I uh, remember the song, Sing Hosanna. Does anyone know that song? Jumping up and down, jumping up and down. Actually, my son Daniel was a sheep in a pageant where they sang that song. Well, he's not in the room, maybe on purpose. Um, but we have some great memories of that. So we can have this, this thought as we visit texts that we've seen before to kind of have been there, done that approach. But I don't think that's uh, an attitude worthy of the Bible. Um, that the Bible issues from a God who is infinite and eternal. And the words never change, the fundamental meaning never change, but the implications and the depth of understanding are limitless. And so as we come to this text this morning, my confidence to not commit the, the uh, terrible sin of leading someone into boredom, which is a whole other topic to talk about, but uh, my confidence is not in myself, not in any ability that I would have, but in the eternal God and His Word that is ultimately limitless. So with that in mind, let's go before Him and ask that He'd bless this time. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for that Palm Sunday and all that went on and how You planned that day and, and all the meaning that's packed in to this short amount of text. Lord, we could spend eternity just thinking about this text, thinking about what it means, thinking about the implications, thinking about Your glory. And so we ask You this morning, Lord, give us eyes to see. Help us by Your Spirit to understand what this means. Help me, Lord. I, I want to serve You, God. I want to serve my dear friends, Your beloved Lord, this morning. So we ask You by Your Spirit, Lord, even in a weak and sinful man, Lord, to do glorious things, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at the text, starting in verse 28 of chapter 19 and reading through verse 44. In the ESV, it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, 
he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Luke 19, 28-44 Now, before we dive into this particular text, I think it's important for us to, to understand some things. At the very beginning of our text, in verse 28, what does it say? It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he said some things before this whole series of events takes place. He said some things that are relevant, it looks like, to what happens in our text, relevant to the triumphal entry. He said some things. Actually, he was coming from Jericho to Jerusalem. And then he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. Well, what are the things that he said? What was he talking about? What's the relevance of those things that he said before this important day? Well, if you took some time to back up in verses 11 through 27, this is after Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who he came to his house and salvation came to his house. After that, he began to teach them. And it says in verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So before Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he brings a teaching. and It's the parable of, of the talents, of the ten minus. He brings some teaching to them because they expected that Jesus on His way to Jerusalem was bringing the kingdom in its fullness. He was going to Jerusalem and going to now establish the kingdom in its fullness. And so Jesus spends some time with this parable 
helping them understand that it isn't quite what you thought. The way the kingdom is going to come and, and the sort of king that I am and how I do things isn't everything that you expected. Matter of fact, much of the, the Gospels is Jesus helping people to understand what sort of king he is. And so leading up to this event, this triumphal entry, is this whole background of what sort of king is Jesus? What sort of kingdom does He bring? And the question of the Gospels is not only what did the people in His day think He was, what sort of king did they think He was, but to us today, what sort of king is Jesus for us? What does it mean to have Jesus as King? What sort of King is He? And the triumphal entry, I think, in a short amount of verses, gives us much to understand about what sort of King Jesus is. So you can follow along in your notes and your bulletin as I go through this. And the first thing I think the text teaches us, the first thing we can learn as we run through the text is that Jesus is a sovereign king. He's a sovereign king. He's a king who rules over all time and space. He rules over all things for His purposes. We can see that in the beginning of the story. At the very beginning, what what happens? Jesus is on His way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And He is approaching these two small villages that are on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethpage. And as He comes, He tells His disciples, guys, I want you to go ahead of Me. I want you to go in this village. And you're going to go in this village and there's going to be a colt there, a donkey and a colt. And the colt's never been ridden on. And I want you to untie the colt. And when the people say, why are you untying it? I want you to say to them, the Lord has need of it. Apparently that was all they needed to say. Now, that, now imagine being the disciples being asked to do that, thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. What are we going to find? We're going to go into this village and I guess there will be a donkey and a colt. And, I mean, and then we're going to take someone else's colt, untie it, and, and we're just going to say the Lord has need of it and they're going to give it to us? You know, I, I can imagine what it would have been like to be with them. But that's exactly what they found. They came, they found in that village a donkey with a colt. Just as he said. They did the magic password. The Lord has need of it. And they were given the colt and they took it to Jesus. Now, why is that story there? Why tell that story? Why tell it with such detail in Scripture? I think there's a couple reasons, but one of the reasons is that we are to understand that this king on his way into Jerusalem is just not any old king. This is a king who knows all time and space, who knows all circumstances. Not only does he know it, but he controls it. So he can say to his disciples, you're going to go into this town, you're going to find it just like this. And you're going to say this, and then this will happen. He, he is a sovereign king. He is a sovereign king. And we can miss that. We can miss it just like they did in that day. Jesus is, we're going to talk about, he's a humble king. He doesn't look like a sovereign king. If you encountered Jesus at that time, he wouldn't look like a sovereign king. The Bible says there was nothing in his appearance to make us attracted to him. He didn't wear really nice clothes and strut around like a king. He was very plain and normal and common and poor. And unremarkable in many ways. And we can 
fail to see that this is not any ordinary person. This is no common person. This is a sovereign king. And he can control where the donkey is going to be and when it's going to have its colts and who's going to own it and what part of the city it gets tied up to and when it gets tied up. And he can control the response even of the people. He is sovereign. He can do that without, without overriding the, the, the free ability of that person to make decisions. He can do that and still be sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. He is this sort of king who is sovereign. And his ministry throughout his life was demonstrating that sovereignty. He did it over and over again. Many of the miracles we see in Scripture are there not just to kind of give us a cool story. Not just so we can say, wow, that's cool. I would love to have been one of those disciples to see that. It's to demonstrate that He is Lord of all and King of kings. So He calms the storm. What was that about? Well, it was certainly the, the disciples, that story, that needed the storm to be calm. They were in trouble. But it was to demonstrate He's Lord and sovereign over creation. He heals the sick. What's that about? Certainly that He cares for people and wants to see them healed and wants them to express, experience kingdom blessing and what the kingdom will fully bring in. Yes, but it's also to demonstrate He is Lord over health and sickness. He goes and He raises the dead. What was that about? Certainly, He loved Lazarus. He felt compassion on the widow of Nain. He cared about them, but it was more than that. He was demonstrating that He is Lord even over death. He's the sovereign King. He's the King of kings. And so, this bit on the donkey is more than just a cool story. Right away, right at the beginning of our text, we encounter a king who's a sovereign king. He rules over all things for his purposes and for his good. For our good, actually. So, he can control colts. He can control a donkey's colt. And we're going to learn as we go through the text and as we visit this on Easter, he can control a cross as well. He can take an evil circumstance. He can take ultimate failure, sovereignly design it, sovereignly work through it to accomplish His ultimate good and glory. That's the sort of king that Jesus is. The question is, what sort of king do we follow? Is our king, is our Jesus a sovereign king? Is He a king who rules over all things? Is He a king who rules over all our circumstances? and ordains them and uses them for good ultimately. Is that the sort of king that you follow? Is that your Jesus? That's what this text is getting at. Not just the idea that He's sovereign, but the application to our lives that I can live my life under this sovereign king. And I can face Difficult circumstances and trials. I can even face evil that is done to me and even by me knowing that it's under a sovereign God and He's going to use it for good and for glory. If I belong to Him, that's the promise. Is your King a sovereign King? This should be a comfort for the believer. This should be immense comfort for us to know that He's sovereign. How could we really face life without that recognition? It should be immense comfort to those who are His followers. And it should be a cause of concern for those who are His enemies. 
says he will use all things for his purposes. Alexander Carson says, and you can put that quote up, nothing can be more consoling to the man of God than the conviction that the Lord who made the world governs the world. And that every event, great and small, prosperous and adverse, is under the absolute disposal of Him who doth all things well and who regulates all things for the good of His people. The Christian, that's you and me, will be confident and courageous in duty in proportion as he views God in His providence as ruling in the midst of His enemies and acting for the good of His people as well as for His own glory. The King we follow is a sovereign King. He's a good King. He's trustworthy. We can follow Him. This is the sort of King who's coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's the sovereign King. He's also the promised King. You see, again, He didn't just arrange for the cult to kind of show off to His friends. He arranged for the cult to fulfill God's promises. During worship, I read from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. And this is a a prophecy that was given by Zechariah about 400 years earlier. Zechariah was a prophet who lived amidst the people of God when they were building the temple, the second temple, and he was sent by God to encourage them. And there's a lot in that book about the coming Messiah. And he says in there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus knew he was to fulfill this promise, to be this Messiah who would come. And so he arranges to have a donkey to sit on, to come into Jerusalem on a donkey as the fulfillment of God's promises. And that's just one promise. His whole life was about fulfilling the promises of God. All the promises, all the things that God said from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, Jesus fulfills all the promises. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, it says that every promise to mankind is yes in Christ Jesus. It's yes. He is the fulfiller of all the promises of God. He is the one who comes to make them possible. And for the one that is in Christ... All the promises for you and for me are yes in Christ. He has done it. He has fulfilled all the promises. He is the ultimate human being. Fulfillment of all things God intended. All history flows from Him and to Him. He's the promise keeper, the promise fulfiller. And it's yes and amen for us. So we follow a promise keeper, a promise fulfiller. Is your God, is your King one who has fulfilled our promises? And is He one who, because of this, every promise for you is yes and amen? All the promises in the Bible are yes. His promise to work all things for good, to conform us to His image, to bring us to that day when we stand before Him guiltless, to finish our faith, Is it yes and amen? It is in Jesus. And He was the fulfiller of all these promises for a purpose. Because that's kind of the next question is, so what? Why? 
Why, why be so concerned about fulfilling all these promises of God? I mean, what's the point? That's the question I always ask my kids when they're playing video games. What's the point? What is this trying to accomplish? Where are you going with this? What's the point of fulfilling the promises? There's something even greater behind what Jesus was doing to fulfill the promises. Now, that's fabulous enough. The fact that one person, actually the God-man, could arrange and so live to fulfill all the promises. I mean, that's fabulous enough. I mean, that's just kind of an amazing thing. Statistically, it's impossible. And if you want to visit all the promises of, of God and think, how could one man arrange for this to happen? There's just no way. So that's kind of a cool thing, but there's more to it than that. There's something greater behind this whole drive to fulfill the promises. And that is the glory of God and the good of His people. The glory of God and the good of His people are what drove Jesus to be the promise fulfiller. Because before anything was ever made, before anything had ever existed, before there were any donkeys or any mountains of olives, before there was any earth, or before there was any universe, there was a perfect and glorious God who's always existed, and He will always exist into eternity. He'd never been lonely. He never had any lack. He wasn't looking for friends. He was never bored. Can you imagine that? Never bored, eternally excited and enjoying the, the fellowship of the Trinity from eternity past. Yet, because of His glory, because of who He is, He sought expression of that. And so He made the universe. He made all things. And He made the universe as a way to show us and to demonstrate and to invite us into the enjoyment of His glory. And so He made it all and He planned it all and He knew what would happen. He even ordained what would happen. He was over what would happen. He knew mankind would fall into sin. Yet even in that, determined through that, to express His glory. To express His infinite perfections and goodness and wisdom and love. His love is, is infinite. You can't find something to define or contain it. Yet, because of that, He wants to show and express it. He wants to, to, to demonstrate His love. He wants to invite us in to know this love that is so humongous. And so how can He communicate that love? How can He show its dimensions? By creating a universe in which people would fall into sin and then giving His very own Son to die on the cross for sinners so they could be forgiven. That is how He has chosen. Above all things, He shows His love in many ways, but above all things, that's how He's shown His love. His love is His glory. As well, His justice is His glory. And He wanted to show that He's perfectly just and wise in everything. And so He demonstrates that as well in dealing with sin. And for the sinner who does not turn to Christ and the love of Christ, there is the demonstration of perfect justice to them. That's what hell is. Receiving and experience cosmic and eternal separation from all goodness and glory. And so there's justice. But His Son came to fulfill and to demonstrate His glory and to work for the good of His people. And so He came 
to demonstrate His love and to demonstrate His justice. For the cross demonstrates both. God in His love has loved us with an everlasting love and set His affections and said, I'm going to make this one mine. I'm going to so work in this person's life by My Spirit because of My Son, because I have determined in My mercy and wisdom to draw them to Myself. I'm going to work in this one's life. But there's a problem there. For Him to count us as His own, He must deal with our sin. and He must be just. He is perfect in His justice. And so the Son came and went to the cross to reconcile those two, His love and justice, so that He could be faithful to His promises to redeem His people and faithful to His promise to be just and punish sin. And so the Son comes as the promise keeper ultimately on the cross to fulfill all of God's promises. So now in Him, this King, everything is yes and amen in Christ for us. So He comes as the promise-keeping King. And is your God, is your King a promise-keeping King? Is He one you can run to who will always be faithful? Who always acts according to His Word? That is the sort of King He is. A promise-keeping King. So He's a sovereign King. He's a promise-keeping King. He's a humble King as well. It's just the combination of all these things together is just amazing. There's no one like Jesus. Sovereign. Promise-keeping. And then humble. He's humble. Humble king is like an oxymoron. Do you know any humble kings? The only one I could think of was good King Wenceslas, right? Good King Wenceslas was his name, you know, on the Feast of Stephen. He's the guy who went out and gave his coat to the poor guy. And we don't really know if he really existed, but, but I think he did. So the only one I could think of was good King Wenceslas. Humble king is just not, it's an oxymoron. And if you think about what mankind is like, if any of us had any bit of the power and authority that Jesus had, watch out. Because we'd be dangerous. Can you imagine if with the current elections, all of a sudden Barack Obama or Mitt Romney or whomever you want to choose, I'm not trying to be partisan here, can you imagine if... Barack Obama all of a sudden had the ability to, at his rallies, provide a free lunch for everybody from a few from a McDonald's hamburger and, and a Coke. Was able to multiply those and feed everybody. I mean, how many people would become part of the Barack Obama campaign? Campaign. And what if he could heal the sick? What if he taught just in such a way that you said, you know, no one else has ever taught like this. No one's teaching has ever had an impact. This guy is speaking powerfully, life-transforming truths. Can you imagine if Barack Obama had that ability? And then throw on top of that the ability to raise the dead. Probably would only raise Democrats from the dead. But, but, but say he had the ability to raise the dead as well. I mean, the man would have some serious power and probably would corrupt him, right? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, he just would probably become a monster. Nothing against him. Anyone would do that, I think, with that sort of power. See, humble king doesn't go together. And the king of kings, in humility, that, that's an oxymoron. To be sovereign. I mean, imagine if you could determine that there's going to be a donkey down the street later on this day, or instead, it's going to be a new automobile. I just can sovereignly say, Eddie, today, after we worship, after this time, I want you to go down to the dealer. There'll be a brand new Maserati or something. 
And, uh, and, and when you go to take the keys, just tell the dealership that, you know, I have need of it. I mean, that's what I'd be doing. Get the Maserati, get this, get that. I mean, that's what I would be doing. That's what we'd all be doing. But that's not what he was doing. He chose a donkey to ride on. He said, what can I do to fulfill Scripture? What can I do to demonstrate the very nature of God? That God Himself is a humble God. How can I posture myself and make my entry, my kingly entry, in such a way that I will demonstrate the character of my Father and my character? Humility. A humble King. That's who He is. And riding in on a donkey demonstrated that. He went into Jerusalem on a donkey and furthermore demonstrated His humility, not just going into Jerusalem on a donkey, but coming out of Jerusalem under a cross. He ultimately demonstrated His humility and bearing that cross for sinners, for God's enemies. God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So He bore that cross for you and for me so that we could be reconciled to Him. He is a humble King. And that should just cause us to be in awe and to worship and to love Him. And it should compel us to pursue humility. To say, how can I be proud? It should make us rigorous pursuers of humility. It should make us to hate pride. Because if our Savior can do this, and He ultimately has all the reasons in, in the universe to boast, then I certainly should be doing it. When I, in reality, all I'm doing is being honest. It should make us to hate pride and pursue humility. Carl Henry, the evangelical leader and theologian of the last century, when asked by D.A. Carson how he managed to stay humble after all his accomplishments, said this, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? We serve a humble king. Finally, he's a praiseworthy king. He's the promised king. He's the sovereign king. He's the humble king. He's the praiseworthy king. And his disciples got it. They knew that he was a praiseworthy king. And so they put their garments on the donkey. They took off their coats and laid them on the donkey. And that was an expression of exaltation and honor for a king that you did. And you can see it in other parts, another part in Scripture when the, when the new king was crowned. They took their outer garments, their coats essentially, off and laid them on the ground. And the king walked over those garments. It's honor, it's worship that was going on by taking their coats off and putting them on the donkey. And then he was riding the donkey. And as he went down the road, they took their coats off and put them on the road for the donkey to walk across. And they took palm branches. They took, took the palms that were nearby and laid them on the road and waved the palms. That was a traditional celebration of the Messiah that they did. But this was worship of the Messiah that they brought. They knew what was going on. And so as you came down the mountain, you'd come down the Mount of Olives into a valley before you'd go up the hill into Jerusalem. As he came down that mountain, they're throwing their coats down. And they're putting the palm branches down. And his disciples are getting loud. And they're shouting. And they're yelling out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna to the Son of David, the Messiah. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're shouting and they're loud. And the Pharisees hear them. They're there. And they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. This, this is too much. This is extravagant. They're calling you the Messiah. And they're going nuts over you. This is, this is inappropriate. And what does Jesus say? If they don't cry out, the very rocks will cry out. They got it. They understood who this was. Now there were some there that later on were fickle. All of them ultimately were fickle. But they got that He was and is the promised King. And so they shouted Hosanna. That's not a word we use a whole lot. Has anyone ever used Hosanna at a baseball game or anything like that? No, we don't, we don't tend to use that word. Hosanna basically means save. But it's more than just save. It's, it's also a, an expression of victory. It's kind of like if you were at the ninth inning of the 2004 World Series as a Red Sox fan. You may have, well, we were all probably watching it anyhow if we weren't there. And you know at that point they had the Cardinals beat. And this is going to be after 85 years or whatever it was, 84? Um, 85. 85 years they're going to win the game. But the game's not quite over. And there's, there's some plays going on and maybe some, I can't remember the ninth inning, shame on me, but, but you know, say someone got a double and you went, yeah! That's what they were saying. Hosanna! This is the Messiah and He's coming to finish it after all these years. Save! You are the One! You are the King! It was victory. It was celebration. It was calling on God to finish what He had started and what He had promised. And so they shouted that. They knew. They knew what they... We're saying they knew who He was. And yet they didn't know like we know. They didn't know like you and I know. They didn't know everything that we can see in the Bible. We know more. And so we are to be all the more exuberant in our lives for Him. Because we know He's, he's all these things. We know that He's the humble King. He's the promised King. He's the sovereign King. We know that He's heaven's champion. He's the creator and sustainer of all. He's the first. He's the last. He's the I Am. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is both the Lion and the Lamb. The second and perfect Adam. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the propitiation of sins. He puts away our sins. Peace is the Father's wrath. He is our righteousness. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the captain of the army of hosts. He's the ruler of all thrones and rulers, principalities and powers. He's the source and object of creation. He's the lover of our souls. He's the giver of living water, the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's all these things. He's the Prince of Peace, the Lord of life, the King of the universe. He's our King. He's Jesus, the Christ, Savior and Lord. We know that. And if His disciples don't praise Him, the rocks will cry out. Because even creation itself is awaiting the day, the final and full revelation of the Messiah, which will come. He will come to finish it. So let us not have any rocks out praising us, out worshiping our God. Let us be exuberant on Palm Sunday, let us be exuberant 
on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. Because we serve the King. We serve the praiseworthy King. And that's the secret of life. The secret of life is to follow the King. The secret of life is to see Jesus as He really is and to value Him as He is truly valuable. That's the secret of life. We're made for God. And life, for many of us, is chasing after substitutes for God. And we will follow what we value most. And the secret of life is this, to see Jesus for who He is and to value Him according to who He is and to find your life and to find my life in Him. To so delight in Him and live in Him that we experience all the abundant life that He promised. It comes as we value and delight in Him. That's where life is. That's the secret of life. Following the praiseworthy King as our King. The band could come up as we close. The story finishes with some conflict. All this exuberant praise is going on and then we see on the scene the Pharisees. And we've been through the book of Luke as a church and we've seen this how Luke contrasts the disciples with the Pharisees over and over again. So at the end of the story we see the Pharisees and they are complaining about Jesus. Disciples are a little bit too exuberant. They're jealous of Jesus, ultimately. And further on in verse 41 to 44, we see Jesus coming up to Jerusalem to the people He loved and weeping over Jerusalem. I believe His weeping was heartfelt. He said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The word for weeping is not just a little bit of tears. It's, it's, it's sobbing. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that you today had known who is your King. What He is. And what that means for you. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Sadly, Jerusalem, by and large, there certainly was a significant remnant, but by and large, rejected the king and missed out on all that it means to follow the king. And ultimately, for that time, suffered judgment. Jerusalem was destroyed, flattened. There's nothing there. There was nothing there after that. It has been reestablished. So we see a picture here of two groups of people. Those that behold the King and follow and those that reject Him. And there's different reasons for rejection. The Pharisees knew what they were doing. They were, it was knowledgeable rejection. Others, it can be semi-ignorant. We all have a knowledge to some degree, but semi-ignorant rejection and choosing to make something else your delight. And this reality in the text today drives us to ask ourselves the question, who are we? What group do we fall in? Will we choose to follow this King? This humble King? This sovereign King? This promised 
peacekeeping king, this praiseworthy king. The promise is for peace in life as we do. If we would be His disciples, let us this day, this Palm Sunday, behold our King and rejoice and celebrate that He's come and He's died and He's risen and He reigns and He'll return and He is a King of all kings. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You, Lord, for who You are. And our confidence is in You, Savior. You are all these things. And so may we, by Your grace and by Your Spirit today, be with the disciples celebrating our King who has come and who has accomplished all that He designed and will bring it to completion. You are the King of kings. You are worthy. And we bless You in Jesus' name. Amen.